0: With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
1: Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan
0: and Cassidy Zachary. We're going to start at the beginning. Not the very beginning, but a beginning. Because for a podcast dedicated solely to the history of fashion, we would be remiss to not begin with one of fashion's great nexus points. And that is the birth of the luxury fashion industry known as haute couture. On our inaugural episode of Dressed, we will discuss the life and legacy of the man many consider to be the father of haute couture, Charles Frederick Worth. Now, the story of the House of Wirth may already be familiar to some of you. And if that is the case, please continue with us because today's journey is going to take us to some surprising places, including the lesser-known history of the African-American
1: designer who was at the helm of the House of Worth during the late 1960s. Our journey begins well over 100 years earlier, however, with the birth of Charles Frederick Worth in 1825. Based in Paris, Worth built a reputation as an internationally coveted fashion designer during the 19th century. His designs were worn by European royalty, the American Nouveau Riche, Glittering stars at the stage and the high-class courtesans who were thrilled to launch Worth's most daring designs when his society clientele was not. It is by no accident, then, that we launch this podcast during Paris Fashion Week, because many sartorial roads lead back to Worth. It can be argued that he is the first true fashion designer, and we will explore how many of his innovations continue to have a lasting legacy in the way contemporary haute couture and luxury clothing is made today. And while the métier of Haute Couture is readily associated with Paris fashion industries, Worth was, in fact, British. He was born in 1825
0: in a market town of Lincolnshire County, England, the youngest child of William Worth and Mary Ann Quincy. His father was a lawyer, and at one point the family was fairly well off, but that didn't necessarily mean that Charles enjoyed a carefree childhood. His father was a heavy gambler, a bit of a rake and eventually abandoned his wife and his five children. This left Marianne in a very precarious place. Her social standing at the time of her marriage was considerably higher than that of her husband's, and in order to provide for her children, she took a governess position with relatives. Circumstances would further dictate that several of the worst children died prematurely, and Charles was forced to leave school at age 11 and sent off to work a printer
1: child labor laws were oh so different in the 19th century were they not only around the time of worth's birth were laws passed that limited the amount of hours children under 16 could work per day and that was limiting it to 12 hours a day 12 april that's crazy
0: (laughs) and perhaps this helps me to understand why young worth hated this job he disliked it so much that by the age 12 He had already set his sights on London, and there he spent his formative years gleaning much of his aesthetic education from frequent museum visits, and eventually he ended up in the employ of an established mercer, initially working as a cashier.
1: Uh, Now, we should probably take a brief digression into the nature of buying clothing at this time in order to define the term mercer, which was also a profession known as a draper, So a mercer was a purveyor of textiles and trimmings and an invaluable source of the necessary supplies for the creation of one's wardrobe. At this point in history, the concept of ready-to-wear clothing that we're also familiar with today, so clothing that you could go and buy off the rack and take home immediately upon purchase, this did not exist. So women made their clothes themselves at home or they hired a dressmaker. Prior to the 1850s, uh, the period when sewing machines became a mass-produced product, All items of clothing were made by hand. So after spending his teen years in London, Worth relocated to Paris in 1845. Now he's in his early 20s, but it was really a struggle at first. Uh, He did not speak French. He had little money. And there were periods where he even went hungry. Um, But he did quickly learn, and he became fluent in French, although it would be remarked later in his life, after decades in Paris, that his English accent was quite pronounced.
0: Eventually, Worth found employment at the revered Parisian mercer Gagelin Opige, but this time he was a sales assistant. The company was a purveyor of luxury textiles, so fine silks, imported cashmere, lace, and they also sold a few ready-to-wear garments, particularly cloaks and mantles that were easier to mass produce because they didn't require a precise fit. Worth would assume a somewhat novel role in the company when he proposed to his bosses a new department. That would vastly increase profits. The company was already successful selling the materials to make dresses. But why not allow Worth to design them and hire a staff of dressmakers to make them up in-house? This would bring in more revenue, and the profits would only go up. The owners of Gagelland were initially resistant to Young Worth's ideas. They were worried that the fine reputation of their establishment would be sullied by an association with dressmakers— this was not a profession held in particularly high regard during the first half of the 19th century. During the 18th and 19th centuries, some female dressmakers made so little money that they were forced to turn to prostitution to make ends meet. So this occupation of dressmaker, it didn't garner the same respect
1: that a fashion designer does today. But that is exactly what Worth began to change during his time at April.
0: Gagelon Opige. Thank you.
1: <laughs> when the company finally allowed Worth to open his dress design department in 1851, he quickly garnered a reputation as a tastemaker, and clients came to count upon his opinions as to how the material offerings, I'm going to attempt it, of Gagelon Opige, Yes. could be made up to best suit them. The importance of Worth's innovative new role and his resulting success cannot be underscored enough. For centuries women had largely been the architects of their own fashion designs. If a woman had enough money to outsource the production of her clothing, she was still responsible for purchasing her own materials and trimmings from a mercer and bringing to a dressmaker. She then gave that dressmaker very specific instructions about how the garment should be made up, and in this way women were largely responsible for designing their own wardrobes. So this was true across the economic spectrum, all the way up to the revered members of European royalty who were largely responsible for setting the trends in fashion. So what these women wore were covered extensively and in great detail in the fashion press, but never with a mention of a fashion designer, as it was a role that did not yet formally exist. But times were changing. Yeah, Worst Designs won a number of awards in the early
0: 1850s, and he became a partner in Gagelland in 1853. This was also the period of time when he married the very lovely Marie-Augustine Vernet, who was a model at Gajolin. And I have a really super cute story about them working together. Do you want to hear it? Yes, please. Okay. So I guess they were a little bit of tricksters, the two of them, and they devised a bit of a sneaky scheme to deal with indecisive customers. So when Worth was working as a salesman at the company, he worked side by side with Marie to sell these ready-to-wear cloaks and mantles that we were talking about. And sometimes the male customers who were looking to buy for the ladies in their life could be especially difficult. So if after trying on maybe several dozen of these items for a client without making a sale, Marie would start to feign exhaustion. (laughs) And this was worse cue to kind of step in and say, hmm, I have an idea. Perhaps, perhaps, no, 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 That, that might be more than you wish to spend. And then, of course, the client would indignantly defend their their wealth and their financial means, after which Worth would go back to the pile of all the things that she had already tried on and then pull out one, put it on her, rearrange it a little bit differently, and the client would be none the wiser and be instantly charmed by this, quote-unquote, new and luxurious <laughs> and probably more luxurious
1: yeah. <laughs> um, item, and, and they would purchase it immediately. I love that story because it really sounds like they were having a lot of fun working together, and Marie would prove instrumental in her husband's success both as his muse, model, and advisor. Their son Jean-Philippe would later remark that, quote, it is impossible not to write at length of my mother when on the subject of the House of Worth. In the beginning, she was my father's inspiration, and in the end, she was the shop's social celebrity. No customer ever treated her as a shopkeeper. And many, delighted by her grace and charm, claimed her as a friend. I think that's really sweet. So, for our next chapter in the Worth saga, we will explore the creation of the aforementioned House of Worth and the birth of Haute Couture. But first, a word from our sponsors. By 1858, Worth felt he had outgrown his role at Gagellon-Opige and was ready to launch his own venture— which he did with the help of a partner, Otto Boberg, who for several years had been designing specialty dresses for royal court presentations. So the two entered into a 12-year contract, and in the spring of 1858, the fashion house Worth and Boberg was born with Worth as the creative director and Boberg, who oversaw administration and production. So a Parisian fashion house run by an Englishman and a Swede the international nature of Worth and Beaubourg, later just Worth, cannot be underscored enough. The duo set up shop in Paris on the Rue de la Paix, which would soon develop into the epicenter of luxury shopping in Paris. The company's initial success is the stuff dreams are made of. Within five years, the business would employ nearly 700 workers, and expansion only continued. By 1870, when Worth and Beaubourg parted ways and the House of Worth was established, it's estimated that 1,200 people were employed. And I particularly love this. Some of them lived in employee dormitories located on the premise. So we've already established the fact that custom-made clothing was nothing new at this
0: time. In fact, it was the norm. What shifted with the rise of Charles Frederick Worth, and perhaps we should also acknowledge his contemporary, Emile pengat is that the profession of a fashion designer as we know it today was born. In what was a complete role reversal, for the first time, the creative vision of the designer superseded that of the client. And with this new profession came the birth of the haute couture industry. Haute couture is French for high sewing. Haute couture merged the highest quality in design, construction, and materials with the newly evolved concept of the fashion designer. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the codification of the industry here in a little bit.
1: Luxury was a staple of Worth and beaubourg from the very beginning, and as the house's reputation grew, the richest women in the world flocked to the Rue de la Paix, quite literally waiting in line on an outdoor staircase in order to gain entrance. And once Worth's reputation was established, whether you're a foreign princess or the daughter of a wealthy industrialist mattered little to Worth. Almost all were forced to bend to his will and come to him for their appointments, save perhaps his most famous royal clients. It's been said that he was a bit of a tyrant. His own son, Jean-Philippe, lovingly refers to him as a despotic genius in his memoirs, but women were willing to put up with his strict rules in order to be touched by his brilliance. He considered himself an artist rather than a mere dressmaker, and in this way, he really is the genesis of our modern-day conceptualization of the role of a fashion designer as tastemaker. He even invoked the artist Rembrandt in the way he dressed, which consisted of a humble's artist's frock and beret, And purportedly, he once compared himself to the painter Delacroix, stating, quote, A toilette should be as perfectly composed as a painting. The ladies who come to me come to me for my ideas, not that I should follow theirs.
0: And this was just the scenario that played out when, just one year in to opening his business, Worth began designing for one of Europe's most famous women, perhaps the
1: one that he is most readily associated with, the Empress Eugenie of France. Somewhat opposed to advertising in a traditional sense, it's not at all unexpected that the fledgling fashion house of Worth and Boberg would court customers, who by their own position or celebrity could help bolster the fame of their brand. So upon the suggestion of his wife Marie, Worth agreed that she should approach the very fashionable wife of the Austrian ambassador to France, Princess Pauline von Metternich. Marie Worth presented herself at the princess's residence and requested her maid to take her a selection of her husband's sketches, After an initial shock that a bourgeoisie Englishman would solicit her patronage by way of his very pretty and very well-dressed French wife, the princess was only too delighted to place an order at a substantially discounted rate. Once she saw Worth's sketches, her reservations disappeared.
0: And while as a client, Princess Metternich was a great catch for the newly launched fashion house, she may not have been the big fish that Worth's plan was meant to attract. Surely, Charles and Marie knew that the princess was very close friends with the Empress of France at the time. Okay, this is going to take a minute. Are you ready? Yes, go. This is very impressive. (laughs) Maria Eugenia Ignacia Augustina de Palafox Porto Carrero de Guzman e
1: Kirkpatrick. Boom. But she went by Eugenie. Just a brief recap of French history up to this point. Despite the fact that the French Revolution had overturned the monarchy of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, who we promise we are going to do an episode on very soon, uh, there were subsequent incarnations of the French court. Napoleon Bonaparte crowned himself emperor in 1804, and the very elaborate court etiquette was restored. Part and parcel to this court etiquette were the dictates of what fashion was to be worn at court. So this was extremely serious business. Remember, Worth's partner, Otto, had been a court dress designer prior to their business. Royal patronage was considered a badge of honor for fashion houses. In 1853, Eugénie married Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew,
0: Prince Louis Napoleon. Louis Napoleon was democratically elected as France's head of state in 1848. He was the first person to earn the title of president. However, when his presidential term expired in 1852, he followed in his uncle's footsteps and declared himself emperor as Napoleon III. But back to our story. The story goes that after admiring Princess Metternich's Worth gown at a ball one evening, Empress Eugénie requested that the fashion designer present himself to her. Once the empress became a client, Worth's reputation was cemented. Princess Metternich even writes in her memoirs, she writes, quote, He was made, and I was lost, for from that moment, there were no more dresses at 300 francs each. <laughs> I like this. She was really upset that
1: she lost her discount. <gasps> Eugenie might not have known it, but her relationship with Worth likely began years before their formal introduction. It is believed that the dress she is wearing in the most famous painting of her may indeed have been an uncredited design by Worth when he was still in the employ of Gajalan. So for you art history buffs out there, the painting is Empress Eugenie Surrounded by Her Ladies-in-Waiting by Franz Winterhalter from 1855. And for those of you that don't know, I'm going to take a little bit of a stab at describing this work for you. So the painting depicts these nine beautiful young women in a clearing in the forest. The landscape around them appears somewhat dark and foreboding, very much in keeping with styles of landscape painting popular in this previous century. The heaviness of the landscape works as a foil for the women who comprise the veritable froth of delicate silk, taffeta, chiffon, lace, ribbon, and flowers that occupy the bottom two-thirds of this painting. So some of these women sit directly on the ground, seemingly protected by their enormous bell-shaped skirts, which at this time could be up to f- something like five feet in diameter. Yeah, I mean, these are crazy wide.
0: Like you're not getting through the doorway do wearing one of these. How do you even sit next to your
1: friend? <laughs> you don't. Um, where one woman's skirt starts and the other begins in this painting is really only distinguishable by the different colors of their dresses. However, Eugenie is recognizable at the center in green, but it can be argued that for Winterhalter, it was really the garments themselves that were the star of the show. I think I have to agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's
0: probably very little wonder then that some of Eugenie's enemies at this time, they nicknamed her the Chiffon Fairy. Like her predecessor before her, Marie Antoinette, Eugenie's love of fashion was a big focal point for some of her critics. She was famous for embracing the silhouette that Cass just referenced, where the skirts were supported by like seven or eight layers of petticoats. They were called crinolines because some were stiffened with crin, or horsehair. The cage crinoline, which made its debut in 1856, was comprised of a series of steel hoops suspended from the waist by means of fabric strips. Yes, women were wearing steel contraptions under their dresses. But the cage crinoline is important because with the steel doing all of the work, the layers and layers of petticoats worn before to achieve the volume were virtually eliminated. And the cage crinoline allowed the volume of the skirts to grow even bigger, if you can imagine that. And Worth speaks about how one of his early designs for this particular silhouette required 100 yards of silk. That is staggering.
1: Wow. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Eugenie's patronage was a real turning point for the House of Worth, and records reveal that by 1864, Worth was officially designated as a supplier to the French imperial court. As other royal courts of Europe and newly wealthy Americans looked to France to set the pace of fashion, they also followed suit and became Worth clients. The shared admiration between Eugenie and Worth lasted long beyond the collapse of her reign in 1870. Knowing parma violets were her favorite flower, the couturier sent them to the exiled empress each year on her birthday until her death.
0: The power of royal patronage is still very much alive and well today. Many of the garments or accessories that Kate Middleton wears to public appearances sell out in a matter of hours thanks to the power of the internet. Unless you were living under a rock, it was practically impossible to not know that Sarah Burton of Alexander McQueen designed her wedding dress. McQueen may not hold the official status as a haute couture house, but then again, neither did Worth at the time of Eugenie. And we're going to talk more about this after we come back from a sponsor break. While Worth is one of the first of this new generation of elite Parisian designers, soon there were many, many more. So many, in fact, that there emerged a need for a professional organization to promote and govern their trade. In 1868, so 10 years after Worth and Beaubourg first opened their doors, we see the institutional legitimization of oak couture houses under the Chambre syndicale. Worth was one of the founders of this new organization that would only continue to grow and evolve over the ensuing decades. The phrase haute couture, in fact, would not be introduced to the organization's name until 1945. So what was this? Membership in the organization provided official designation as to who could and could not call themselves a couture house. It was and still remains a professional standard to which designers compare themselves. Additionally, the organization would grow to dictate collection launch dates, the required number of designs that had to be shown, matters of intellectual property and piracy, as well as the overall working conditions and benefits of couture house employees. Some of its most famous members of the 20th century, we all know, superstar designers such as Coco Chanel, Cristobal Balenciaga, Christian Dior, Valentino, the list could go on and on and yes, on and on and
1: did. on. The word couture generally conjures up notions of exclusivity. And while Worth, as an officially sanctioned couture house, was providing bespoke creations to royal clients— and the creme de la creme of international society, he was also embracing some rather alternative methods to advertise the Worth brand. The House did not shy away from courting celebrities of the day, including actresses, opera singers, and courtesans, who just by the nature of their profession, all of these women were generally excluded from society proper. Nor did the House of Worth find their operations too elite that they did not actively seek out a mass-market bourgeoisie clientele. From
0: the earliest days of Worth and Boberg, the company actively cultivated relationships with department stores, particularly department stores in London and the United States. And these department stores would license Worth designs to be sold in their stores. Rather than combat the widespread practice of copying, Worth had made this decision to make his work available at a variety of price points and to make money while doing so. He even went so far as to offer paper patterns of his dress designs. As early as 1870, ads for worse paper patterns can be found in American fashion magazines. So, from the get, from the very beginning, haute couture has always had this sort of symbiotic relationship with mass-produced clothing, which is something that I think most people don't realize.
1: Worth was truly innovative in many different ways. Some were creative innovations, while others were business decisions like the ones April just mentioned. We already mentioned that Worth considered himself an artist, so it's perhaps not surprising that he found a way to sign his work. He was one of the very first fashion designers to identify his work by sewing in labels bearing his name into his garments. He installed various types of artificial light in specific showrooms, so clients could see how his clothes would look under natural versus artificial light, In other words, how your gowns would look in the daylight versus a night out at the opera or a ball, although he may have stolen this idea from department stores. He was also one of the first couturiers to offer maternity wear with a dedicated in-house model to show off styles for pregnant clients. But one of his greatest innovations that has had a lasting legacy in the way haute couture houses operate today has to do with the manner in which his house functioned. Rather than having a single employee execute a garment from beginning to end, he created specialized ateliers within the house, where workers only performed their designated task before the garment was passed along to the subsequent atelier for their specialty. For instance, setting sleeves may happen in one department, while the creations of linings would happen in another, and beading an embroidery in yet another, and so on. This allowed him to greatly speed up the pace of production.
0: One of Worth's best clients recounted how when pressed for time by an upcoming trip, she was able to receive 18 couture ensembles from Worth in only 12 days. Wow. <laughs> and this actually, Cass, wasn't something that was all that unusual or unheard of at the House of Worth. There, there are many tales of these last-minute orders that were being turned out in less than 24 hours, particularly orders for fancy dress. Um, Fancy dress is— is a general kind of dress historian term for what we here in the U.S. would call a costume. Costume balls, these fancy dress balls, were enormously popular pastimes during the 18th and 19th centuries across all different levels of society. And if a woman was used to dressing in the finest haute couture, she might not be willing to accept anything less when it came to her costume for a really big
1: society ball. And Worth created elaborate fancy dress costumes and sparing no expense. They frequently incorporated real jewels and precious metals. By their very nature, these costumes were often ordered last minute and by dozens of clients that were attending the same party. How was he able to do this, you may be asking yourself? Well, Worth had a secret weapon, and it was the um, sewing um, machine. Um. <laughs> The sewing machine, as we have mentioned, only recently came into widespread commercial use in the 1850s.
0: I think there might be a little bit of a misconception that exists out there that all haute couture sewing is done by hand. Oh, for sure. A few years ago, one of my fashion history students was just staunch set on the fact that haute couture houses were not allowed to use sewing machines. And she wouldn't give up this idea until I I had pulled up my computer and pulled up more than one behind-the-scenes video clip showing the seamstresses at present-day Dior using sewing machines in the couture ateliers. That being said, um, one of the distinguishing factors of haute couture does lie in the impeccable handwork that's executed by teams of skilled artisans both inside and outside the couture house. Um, A lot of worse other innovations can be credited to his experience as a mercer. Textiles remained near and dear to his heart throughout his lifetime, and he even set up showrooms inside the couture house to display fine textile offerings. He might have, like, all the velvets in one room, all the silks in another. Maybe they were even color-coded, some people say. But these textiles that he was offering, a lot of them were unique commissions, and he bought them in large quantities. Prior to this, it had been customary to purchase existing fabrics on a per-project basis, which usually ended up costing more than buying in bulk, same as it is today.
1: Worth worked in conjunction with France's textile industry to develop new products, including satin. Prior to Worth, the weave structure known as satin, which, as we all know, results in a luscious sheen, was mainly relegated to use for ribbons, not entire garments. In his autobiography, Worth's son Jean-Philippe relates a story of how the fashion designer coerced Empress Eugenie into wearing more silks produced in the nation's silk-weaving epicenter of Lyon. The Empress was initially resistant, as the region had been somewhat reticent about her husband's reign. When Worth pointed out that giving the Lyon weavers business may curry her favor politically, however, she gave in, and by 1872, the number of operating looms in Lyon more than doubled, This restored the region to a glory not seen since before the French Revolution.
0: Creative advancements in silhouette are always a feather in the cap for any fashion designer, and Worth was at the forefront of more than just a few. When the house launched in 1858, the fashionable silhouette was already dominated by the cage crinoline we referenced earlier. But by around, say, 1863, Worth began to embrace a cage crinoline that was a slightly different shape It was flatter in the front, and by doing this, it effectively shifted more of the volume towards the back or rear of the skirt. This would eventually culminate in the creation of the bustle-style gowns, which were made in repeated incarnations during the 1870s and the 1880s. But by the end of the 1860s, Worth felt that the cage crinoline was, quote, becoming absurd. (laughs) So he moved in a whole other direction— and he created what's called the princess line silhouette. It's thought to be named in honor of Alexander, the Princess of Wales at the time. And the style used vertical seams that extended downwards from the bust to the thigh to create a very much narrowed silhouette that clung to the corseted figure. And this was an entirely different mode or technique of construction. Many of worse dresses prior to this time were actually a combination of a skirt and then separate interchangeable bodices. But the vertical seaming of the princess line resulted in dresses that were made up all as one piece.
1: He was also at the forefront of incorporating new types of passimentary, passimentary, April? Passimentary. Uh, Also known as trimmings, (laughs) used in fashion. (laughs) During his time at Gajilan, he introduced jet, a type of deep black gemstone similar to coal. However, when jet is polished, it takes on this intoxicating sheen. And previously, Jet was seen as almost too flashy to use in fashion, but under Worth's endorsement, it would go on to become de rigueur in women's fashion for many, many decades. Worth's son, Jean Philippe, would later follow in his father's footsteps as one of the first to incorporate Swarovski crystals into his designs in 1900. Jean Philippe trained as a designer under his father, while Gaston, who had quite the head for business, sought to organizational and monetary affairs, investing the house's earnings and making the family even wealthier. In
0: 1890, having worked in the fashion trade in one capacity or another for 50 years, Charles Frederick Worth retired. Jean-Philippe took the reins as the house's designer. And the elder Worth led a quiet life of leisure and travel until he died on March 10th, 1895. This date is particularly significant because for years, the couturier had been terrified of the date March 10th. A close friend of his had passed away on that day, and he kind of had this premonition that this would also be the date of his death. In the end, he ultimately was correct. It was a lung infection at the age of 69 that
1: was the culprit. And while one chapter of the House of Worth closed with the death of its legendary maestro, the story of Worth was far from over. Under the guidance of Jean-Philippe and Gaston Worth, the house continued to flourish. A whole new generation of celebrated beauties became clients as many of their mothers had been before them. In her autobiography, the American heiress Consuelo Vanderbilt, was a media sensation, one of the era's it girls, recounts visiting the House of Worth as a teenager when her mother decided it was finally time to turn her into a proper young lady. Only Worth and Worth alone could be trusted with this transformation. About his American clientele, Charles Frederick Worth once famously stated, quote, I like to dress them, for as I say occasionally, Quote, they have faith, figures, and francs. Faith to believe in me, figures that I can put into shape, francs to pay their bills. Yes, I like to dress Americans. Mm -hmm. Of course you do. Yeah. (laughs) The French society luminary, the
0: Comtesse Graffoul, who was the real-life inspiration for the character of the Duchess Guermont in Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, was a client of the Younger Worths, as were the international opera sensations Nellie Melba and Mary Garden. So, this infusion of youth was sweeping into the house, and Gaston realized that perhaps his brother and him were too steeped in the heritage of their father. So, in 1901, they brought in a very young, 22-year-old assistant designer in an effort to evolve with the times. His name was Paul Paré. And we're not going to delve into the fantastic fantasy that is the career of Paul Paré, because you're going to hear about him in subsequent episodes. But let's just let it suffice to say that what Worth was to the birth of haute couture, Poiret would be to the birth of modern dress. It was only a couple of years before Paré grew restless at Worth and left to set up his own shop, which inevitably resulted in the two houses becoming rivals. Worth, once at the forefront of fashion, would come to represent more conservative tastes, while Poiret would go on to cater to
1: the avant-garde. So, we have now made our way into the 20th century, and the baton will once again pass among the Worth men. And actually, it passes for the next three generations. Throughout the ensuing decades, the success of the house gradually waned, and the dynasty that had lasted nearly 100 years in Paris would come to a close in 1954. A merger of the couture houses of Worth and Pachin, however, remained open in London until 1967. So, this is it. End of the road. Fiend. Story over. Right? It's actually not, and what happened next is very, very intriguing. When Pecan was finally liquidated in 1967, a London-based furrier, Sidney Masson, bought the rights to the defunct entity that had been the House of Worth and installed a hip new designer at its helm, Inter Highland Booker, the American who would shatter the glass ceiling and become the first black fashion designer to head a prestigious haute couture brand in an historically all-white industry. That he did so during the revolutionary 1960s makes his story all the more fascinating, and April and I have the distinct honor of having him here with us today. First of all,
0: Mr. Booker, I just want to say what a delight it is to have you with us on our very first episode of Dress. Cassidy and I weren't sure if we are going to be able to track you down before it was time for us to go into the studio, but thanks to the power of asking around and the kindness of strangers, voila, here you are today with us by way of Los Angeles but you are not a native Angelino, correct? You're originally from Detroit.
2: Yes, a long, long ways away, I guess, by not only time but space as well.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how a young man from Detroit ended up studying fashion in the early 1960s in London?
2: Well, actually, I started studying fashion in, in Detroit, actually. I, uh, I went to a very good school, Cass Tech, and I was a commercial arts school. From there, I uh, entered a fashion contest, and I did very well in it, and after school, I became a window dresser, so I was directly involved with fashion from, from almost leaving high school, and I was a window dresser until I actually joined the Air Force. I was stationed in England, as was the case, and um, I went to Swindon Tech when I was there for fashion design there as well. And it's through that that I went to the RCA, actually, the Royal College of Arts. So it was a kind of, uh, it's, all the journey took place while I was in the service. I mean, I did all of this while I was there. I got permission time off to go down and take the exams and do all the things that I had to do to get in.
0: I love the fact that you were in the Air Force and also studying fashion. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I was in the Air Force all the time. So, uh, But, that, you know, that's one of the things I think that made me a little bit different because I was always heading toward the prize, if you get what I mean, even though I was uh, mm-hmm. somewhere else, if you get what I mean. You know, the service can be a pretty uh, exacting thing. And yet uh, this personal space I found, I was able to do the thing I wanted to do.
0: And I understand that after you graduated from college and you were out of the Air Force at this time, you had your own brand called Highland Booker. This is mid-1960s.
2: Yeah, that was great fun. That was great fun. And, you know, one of those things about being your own thing is that you, don't have, you can't hire enough people to do all the things. that. So you have to be able to do everything yourself, mm-hmm. you know. And that's one of the things that the college had taught me. By the time I left uh, the college, I was a, t- a good tailor. Uh, and I became a better tailor as, as the years passed on. So, and that was my real interest, and I think that's what separated me from um, other students uh, and people like Ozzy Clark and things like that. So oh, being definitely. a tailor allowed me uh, to just pursue all those great heroes that I was, you know, that you fall in love with, you know, it was Givenchy and Balenciaga and Correge and everything. So, you know, I was very lucky, though. Uh, there's one thing I must tell you. I was very lucky getting into college because I also was uh, a friend of Mary Quant.
1: Oh, wow.
2: Who was, you know, the starter wow. of the great 60s things. And she uh, and her husband wrote uh, a wonderful recommendation to get me into the Royal College of Art.
1: So I want to take just talk a little bit about Mary Quant uh, and the youth fashion revolution of the 1960s because for our listeners who might not know – uh, Youthquake was termed by Vogue editor Diana Vreeland to describe the dramatic influence that youth had for the first time on fashion in the 1960s. So, fashion's coming not from the upper echelons of Parisian haute couture necessarily, but from this like rebellious, mini skirted youth on the street, of which Mary Quant was one designer. You mentioned Ozzie Clark was your classmate as another designer. And we have you in London during this exciting time.
2: Yeah. So we had a whole bunch of other people there, too, obviously, that are not mentioned uh, that came out of the Royal College at the same time or around the same time and other colleges that were going on. London was really quaking, as they really say. I mean, uh, you know, I had the you can't imagine. I, I started in a little attic my, my collection was in an attic uh, right behind Liberty's, and I created these clothes. I had one sewer and myself. I cut these things. I found factories that would make my clothes and offered them to stores, and it was quite successful. I mean, it was amazingly successful. It kind of builds not only the confidence, but it also builds the belief that you're the moment, if you know what I mean.
1: Can you tell us about the clothes you were making?
2: Well, I I did a lot of uh, Knits and uh, suits and and you know one of the things about what I was doing against what Ozzy was doing. Ozzy was working with dresses and I was working with tailoring and suits and and coats and jackets and things of that nature. And plus knitted dresses. I would do. I had a factory in in Scotland that were making me things uh, that were very very uh, commercial and and very good. And so uh, I was able to cover a much more traditional line of of offerings than, say, even Ozzy could offer, uh, because he was just doing, you know, mostly dresses. You know, one of the things about clothing is that you have to cover all the bases if you really want to to be interesting. Uh, It was a traditional way to go for me, and and it's also a a love affair, so it wasn't like I was conforming to anything other than the fact that this is what I really wanted to do. And one of the great things about London at the time was that we were all able to have a separate personality and still get attention, which is, you know, it wasn't like you had to be doing one thing. You know, there were several things that you could do, and and it was just very exciting, and uh, I, it's almost hard to to explain to people when you're in that sort of total zeitgeist place in which you're thinking and things work out exactly the way you might think. I mean, I think it kind of spoils you for life for the rest of life because it's very hard to do that again. I mean, to have something that you think of something one day and the next day it's important. That's extraordinary. And the whole of the 60s was a bit like that, you know. And one of the great things about European designing is that you can design for a lot of people. When I had my own company, I just was doing myself, just getting started. But after I left my company, that company, and I started up, I was working for three people, four people at a time. I, I, when I was with Worth, I was also with another company called Baccarat. Then also I did a big fur collection at the same time uh, in Wigmore Street. And, of course, all the time you were still sucking up the oxygen of the, of the Beatles and the, and the world that was taking place. And I think youth is very much like that, though, in which you uh, have a kind of singularity, or at least you believe that, and and you're traveling through some kind of special space. And London at the time was very ripe for that.
1: I just wanted to go back a little bit, Hyland, because when we were talking about Mary Quant and Ozzie Clark and this culture, this youth culture that was alive and thriving and swinging 1960s London. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you talked about a little bit about the Beatles, I mean, the Rolling Stones, the music. And Mary Quant, for instance, really involved that in her display of fashion. She transformed the fashion show, sending models dancing down the runway, painted, wearing makeup. I mean, this is a really exciting time, and you were in the center of it. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Uh, Well, you know, it's like being at a beautiful party. I mean, can you go back and say everything that uh, was going on? Uh, It's kind of yeah... Once again, I'll go back to the Zeitgeist thing. I mean, you're, when you're in it, it, you're taking this whole world for granted, and it's a collective. It's not like right. you're just by yourself. You know? yeah. Everywhere you go, you go to restaurants, you meet people that you're seeing and are involved with, you go to uh, events, and it's just a, a kind of fever in a way that uh, I had to... Uh, if you get to experience it's really wonderful but if uh, most people don't you know most people feel you know alone and it's just uh, inventing a you know, an ordinary world. But I think in the case of, the, of not only the music, the clothing, the excitement that the, and also the tremendous amount of attention. You know, not, that's one you forget is that we're you're in the papers, you're in the magazines, you're almost everywhere. I had everything I did was considered interesting. And well, God knows whether that was true or not. <laughs> but but uh, it was uh, you know I, you know even. The food. I would. I was also a bit of a cook, so I was cooking a, a lot of Chinese food. I had a, my recipes were in magazines. Wow. Uh, you know, imaginary table sets were made out of. So, and Ozzy and everybody had this kind of treatment. You know that uh, that we were somehow or another unique in that in that moment. And I still believe it was all just a fever of of the newness of things. You know, when when the, we were leaving the fifties, which was a very dull time in London. and and England and so close to the war years um, we were literally the beginning of all of this thing that now we live in in a much more complete way than we did even then where that's a day to day thing and and I sort of, we were sort of the template for that thing, the fun of it, the joy of it, the excitement of it, and, and the freedom of it. Uh, the freedom is really important. I mean, by the time this comes along, the pill has come along to change women and of the way the world treated sex and all the other things that were going on, uh, the skirt links, the nudity. The, all, it was just, <laughs> just really great. I mean, it was, right. when you're young and, and you're doing these things, it feels more natural than you can imagine. And also, you leave another generation behind. You you even watch that generation kind of slink back as you kind of power ahead and uh, and and make the world uh, in your own image. Wow.
1: You mentioned um, the House of Worth, which you began designing for, I think, in 1967.
2: 68, actually.
1: Oh, 68. Yeah. So we found a great quote from Sidney Masson, which was the furrier that revived the House of Worth. So it was this very prestigious oak couture brand in the early 20th century. um, And they quote said, the house had become too conservative. We wanted to explode the grand but old fashioned myth. So I engaged Highland Booker, a very dramatic and fresh talent to do the women's collections. So can you tell us what was happening at Worth in the 1960s? Well, one of the things is
2: that uh, the whole London thing had gotten to be still kind of dodgy in that way in which uh, the couturiers at the moment were doing rather traditional things Their skirt lengths were sort of middling. Uh, they were just not working with new ideas. They didn't want to pump it up and not the way, in fact, in which Paris had uh, started to do with Yves Saint Laurent's presence. But uh, London had sort of lacked that thing and I, when when Sydney came and asked me to do this job, I knew that I could not just fall back on all the traditions of the way things would Be acceptable for the culture, that I had to actually reinvent a way of looking at the clothing in a very modern way. And so uh, I decided to open my first collection based on Japan, which was the Japanese sort of kimono and obi thing in which I was able to translate that into suits and and coats and dresses and a whole bunch of things. And also, there was a structural thing going on that was counter. It was sort of, if you imagine that Correge and people of that nature were producing these rather structural things, kind of strong silhouettes with just beautiful, simple details. Uh, it was uh, extraordinarily attractive and uh, and had taken the clothing, the colors were different, they were brighter, they were more solid, the, the shapes were just, uh, I don't know, it's hard to even explain how different it was for the clothing that existed at the moment to what it was becoming. And I had an opportunity there and so I, I took it. I there was nothing, and not, no one else had a better idea, than I, and I was in charge of it, so it was just easy enough to do. And I think one of the things that happens with all this stuff is that once you start, you know, the confidence of doing and and making the clothes, you just invent a world all on your own and hope that that, once again, as I said, will be, you know, will be successful and that people will see your point of view. Clothing is such a, in that way, for a designer, it's uh, it's uh, as we know with all the. Great designers that we know. They pursue ideas that they're fascinated and, and, and captivated by.
1: And for you, that was Japan at that moment.
2: Yeah, at that very moment, I, I thought that it was the uh, original place with some of the most original things going on. And also, there was something classic, too, about it in that way in which these things could be, be in the OB in and the, in the kimono, these basic kind of shapes, which, of course, as we saw in history, people took it even further than I did.
1: And something we were curious about that we couldn't quite confirm was was are still operating as a couture house at this time?
2: No, it wasn't operating as a couture house at the time. Um it was um uh, basically it had kind of fallen that part of it had fallen to the wayside, meaning it was still there, but it was not. I think it was operating on very loose. It had some perfume, and I think it had some odds and bits that they were doing, but they weren't really uh, getting people in to buy clothes. And so the project, in a way, that was very successful. That was very helpful because we had no major thing to overcome. You know, while we, our first collection was... Was considered, uh, you know, phenomenal and uh, and uh, and was taken as a revitalization of the whole couture business in London.
0: Um, so the '60s, obviously, very tumultuous in the United States, probably slightly more so than in in the UK at that time. And you had stated in the press in the 1960s that matters of race were different in England compared to the U.S. And you felt that, in many ways, being a black designer in London almost kind of helped propel you forward. In your experience, what was the relationship between race and the fashion industry during the 1960s and the 1970s? And, and how did this inform your own
2: experience? Uh, you know, that whole—I think one of the most important things about— uh clothing, the essential part of it, the designer doesn't carry with it a kind of identity. So in a way, clothing is a kind of separate language, which is an international language. So when you're doing these things and making these clothes, there's no black designer coat, if you get what I mean. It's just a coat. And so that to some extent, you're hidden behind this thing. Now, what what was good for me was that most of Britain, the, um, the uh, immigrants there were Jamaicans and um, and Nigerians and people of that nature, and this was early days, so there wasn't like it was an overwhelming amount of that going on, but it was still uh touch and go. Americans always had that little bit of uh, you know curiosity about being an american and and I think one of the, that's one of the things that helped me i i was I was just different, but I was also vocal, meaning I talked to. Clearly. Uh, I, in the end, even aped a bit of Englishness about it. And I also was deep in the culture. By the time I left the Royal College of Art, I knew, I knew a lot of people. Uh, I knew most of the press. You know, the whole thing just, you become a part of it. And, and as a result of that, your race uh, is no more than just a tag. It's like, uh, it's just another distinction between what you are and what you're doing. But it doesn't doesn't carry itself all the way through the culture. It's not like a, a sports person or something of that nature. So it's like a you create a product and the product separates from you and it isn't a black product. It's just a dress, you know, and you either love it or you don't love it. Uh, And I think that for me, that's how I treated uh, race. And uh, I I was very aware of everything that was going on, but I didn't feel uh, that it tied me to anything. I didn't feel I had to promote something or not promote something. It was a part of what I was. And, uh, and, And I was, of course, being given a great deal of freedom and largesse about the things I was doing, so I didn't feel any restrictions. What was going on in America was uh, terrifying and, and sad, but, you know, one of the things about being involved in fashion is that it's a tremendously detail-orientated thing. I mean, you, you're making one collection and planning the next one. You know, you have lots of things on your plate, and I was very much a person who uh, concentrates on what it is I was doing, so... I just put my head down and kept going, because in a way, kind of, London was very different than what was going on in the 60s, in London was very different than the 60s of what was going on in America, at least as far as my point of view was, and, uh, and I think that uh, that was who I was. By the time it happened, I was more English than I was American, and so everything that was happening in England, and the thing, especially since I was a principal at that point, was centered around what we were about.
0: You sent us this beautiful image, emailed it to us last night. I want to talk about Mia a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, Mia was a cosmetics line um, for women of color that you launched in the early 1970s. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about?
2: I was working with, uh, with some people in a cosmetic advertising company, and they were dealing with uh, uh, the business of clients promoting uh, cosmetics of various kinds. And I was working with the head lady who ran the place, and, and we had talked about uh, what do you think about launching something for uh, dark Skins, and I thought it was a great idea. And, and of course, it was uh, quite complicated in, in the sense in which once you decide to do that, you have to then go through a whole series of traditional um, development as far as cosmetics is concerned and for that i didn't have to do too much of that because i i didn't know anything chemically about the whole business but uh i was definitely willing to go along with the line and uh and so we decided that it was a great idea and and uh, we launched it as you—I think I sent you a photograph of it. Yes,
1: of it's really
0: fantastic. I, I think um, I think it's you and Miss Mia. Yeah, the beauty queen. The beauty queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find this interesting particularly because 50 years later in the press, we're still getting all of these um, accounts from from models of color who, who are frustrated with makeup artists when oftentimes they show up to set and they're not, um, you know, prepared. Um, so, so I find that fascinating. That you were breaking this ground fifty years previous.
2: Yeah, it was amazing that it, uh, it took so long to. I, I think it's kind of like missed opportunity, though, for people. I think that one of the as the world gotten, how can I say, more democratic, it sees the potential, and it was, a, and it's a great potential. I mean, we're not talking about small time here, but we were so early that in many ways, I think a lot of what I was doing was a little maybe a few years earlier than it should have been. When we launched uh, Worth, for instance, really the big launching of uh, Dead Houses takes place about three to four years later with uh, uh, Karl Lagerfeld and Chanel, if you know what I mean. So that The timing uh, was a little bit earlier than most people, but once it did start, uh, many houses that had been neglected started uh, having new designers and opening up uh, and and actually being uh, well-received.
1: Um, I think the only other question I have, Highland, would be because this is the era of the pe- men's peacock, so-called peacock revolution.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: can you tell us a little bit about what you were dressing like? What you were wearing at this time?
2: Well, I, people would. I would. I had this big cape. I would wear to the <laughs> the big big cape that I would wear. Um, it was quite long. I mean, it was literally uh, just above. Uh, uh, just above my ankles, and I would sweep in with it and take it off. I mean, you know, it was one of those kind of things. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful Getty picture of, that has recorded me and one of my models, and it was, in that sense that we were very well dressed. At least I dressed, you know, with traditionally blue jackets with cream pants or or tan pants and and ties and. and you know the, the whole thing. So, have you have you seen that incidentally? That little piece of that Getty has done.
0: I have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's,
2: uh, it's you can you look it up. Uh, you put my name in it; it'll come up, uh, and it shows. It actually has a wonderful garment, which I really love, in it, and one of the models that uh, I was, you know, quite close to. So that that was exciting.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about um, Worth? Um, kind of wrapped up, I think, in the early 1970s, right? C- can you tell us a little bit about w- what trajectory your career took after Worth
2: closed? Well, uh, you know, um, once again, because I was, uh, I was, you know, I was very disappointed by the, by the our failure, ultimately, because it was a big struggle to turn and to do a ready-to-wear collection with the company. But, you know, one of the things that I think you realize in fashion is that you need more than just a designer or a good idea. You need great management, you need a forward thinking. you have to have people who understand the business, because whatever fashion is, it's still a business. it's about how that business function, uh, the way in which you uh, construct, for instance, construct a collection and present a collection and sell a collection. It takes great experience to know how to do that, and uh, especially if you've got a big name like Worth. And also, there's, uh, as usual, you're always dealing with egos, and uh, I think that the Worth situation. There was never an admission that, you know, well, maybe I should get a partnership with some really super ready-to-wear guy who knows about how to make this company because it was such a big idea. It wasn't like when I was doing Highland Booker. It was bigger than that, and and turning it into a, a super commercial business was um, – not a simple thing, and so you did need experience and things like that. Anyway, after Worth, I, of course, had many other companies that I was working with. I worked with a company called Cannibal a lot, uh, and Maxwell Croft, a fur, a Furrier. Not only, I was still working for Baccarat, uh, going to Liverpool when they even moved there, so going back and forth there. I was also teaching um, at, at Nottingham College, so it was a very varied, Thing that was going on. I didn't mess a beat, you know, I just kept rolling on. I'd start new companies as quick as you could blink. I think one of the things I said about the 60s is that you kept believing that you can reinvent the moment, and um, and so I kept reinventing it. Does that make sense? <laughs> that all right? <laughs>
0: Yet. Yeah no 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 we've gotten some really great gems. Yeah. You can't see us here in the studio, but Cass you'll say one specific thing. Cassie and I keep giving each other thumbs yep, up. Yeah, so <laughs> we're very happy.
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I I I know one of the things that make these things kind of difficult is how you have to generalize. But you know, when you're going back that far, um, you really. It would be unfair to try to name everything. You know, I was reading, rereading Ozzy Clark's book by uh, Judith Watt, and it named all the people that you know that affected us in college. To, and I, I was thinking of them, and it, it drove my memories back to all of those people and and the whole the whole state of England at the time. And it was a lot of us, and uh, we were all doing stuff. So I felt honored to be in a group. You know, There would be meetings with me and other people. There would be constantly uh, finding ways to get you into the press. So it was a kind of unique time uh, for, for not only for, for that generation. Uh, and I, I don't think it can even be repeated because now there are so many more people involved, and and the whole thing is such much grander. So to be an individual to stand out now is is really hard. But uh, it is being done, though.
0: thankfully. Aww. Well, thank you so much. I I, th- I just want to um say we're unfortunately. We knew we were going to run out of time,
2: right? So we've run out, have we?
0: <laughs> yeah, but um, I just want to thank you so so much for yeah, joining thank us today you so to much, give Helen. us some thoughts about your time at Worth and your career at large. We love making these sort of historical connections um, to the present, and that's one of that's one of the things that we try to do on Dressed. So, thank you so
2: much. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's it was it's been fun to think about it all and to revisit. Uh, much of this stuff. It was uh, it was a very exciting time, and I and I uh, uh, I think it's very hard to live up sometimes to the past <laughs> if you've had a pretty big one, if you know what I mean.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which it seems you would have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The late 1960s revival of the House of Worth would not be the last. In 2010, the brand was briefly revived once again, and this is part of a larger trend that's been going on lately to re- rebreathe life into these historic fashion brands from the past, which I'm just going to let it say is extremely tricky.
1: Yeah. That's all for us this week. We would like to give a huge thank you to Mitchell Owens for his kind assistance in helping us locate Highland Booker. And please join us next week for our episode entitled The Birth of Modern Dress.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about the time period when women finally decided to give up the corsets and slip into something a little more comfortable. Until then, we hope you all enjoy getting dressed. Please follow us on Instagram for visuals that augment each week's episode. At dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. That's at dressed underscore podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at dressed at howstuffworks.com.